Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. And welcome to Jedi Order, a Star Wars pod. We're here, Ground Zero, Episode 1. My name is Ben, and I've started this podcast because, as you probably guessed it, I'm a massive fan of this little space adventure saga called Star Wars. And I thought, I've got a great idea. Why don't I start a podcast where I can talk about it with my friends and other people who love Star Wars just as much as I do? So this is pretty much what I'm doing. Um, We're talking everything Star Wars, books, comics, toys, and everything there is in between. Now and again, we'll also talk about other books, shows, films, TV series uh, from the pop culture world too. So that brings me to episode one. Not The Phantom Menace, but of this podcast. And my first guest goes by the name of Alexander Mylas. Alex was... uh, I met Alex in the music industry nearly ten years ago. Alex was the editor and editor-in-chief for Metal Hammer magazine for just over ten years. And he's a champion of the metal music scene and community there. And since leaving Metal Hammer, he helped found the Heavy Metal Truants charity, which has raised over half a million pounds over the past few years for various causes. But not only that, he is a huge fan of real space as well as Star Wars. And he created Space Rocks with the European Space Agency in 2018, which is an awesome celebration of space exploration and the art and music and culture it inspires. Their events have been host to the likes of astronaut Tim Peake and Queen legend Brian May, just to name a few. So he's a pretty awesome dude, and I thought a pretty good guy to start this podcast with. So even with all that going on, Alex, uh, fortunately enough, agreed to sit down with me and chat Star Wars. Uh, but we spoke for so long, it had to be edited and split into two episodes. So here is the first part of the chat, which we take a deep dive into the awesome and new Disney Plus and Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, and talk about everything from the characters how we've enjoyed the series so far, what we would like to see in the new series, and the possibility of all the different spin-offs. So without further ado, here is episode one. So guys, here we are, first episode of Jedi Order, a Star Wars and pop culture pod. And with that, I'd like to welcome our first guest. And I think it's the, a great guest to start and kick things off with because this guy loves Star Wars and has got just probably more knowledge than I have uh, on Star Wars as I see myself as more of a, a surface fan where I do not know the certain names to certain ships, but I do love it and watch it more times than the average person. So please welcome Mr. Alexander Mylas to the first episode. Alex. You're right, Ben. How you doing? And, uh, you know, I, I got to say, I feel completely unworthy of that intro. I mean, you, yeah. you, start, you, you started a podcast, for Christ's sake. Of course, you're a massive fan. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I always kind of when I listen to um, 
to other people talk about it and uh, i've done I'm, as i'm sure you might have done i've done a few star wars quizzes in my time uh, and a couple of uh, cer- certain questions were like what is the name of han solo's blaster i have no idea i've heard it a few times and i still don't know and various things like that yeah well i mean i i, I think i'm the same though i mean i uh you know my 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 love for star wars literally has no bounds and you know and if if you see the apartment i live in uh it it does look like a 12 year old found a thousand dollars because there are many space vehicles around but but the truth is i i guess it just depends on the fan you know of what they get from it i mean some people do love that level of uh specificity i mean reenactment you know and of course you know i've got some great friends in the 501st you know, um, that's their expression of love for Star Wars and all that. I, I, I think it just has to be a little live and let live. And, uh, you know, sometimes if there's one thing that I can't really abide is just any kind of snobbery in Star Wars fandom. I mean, there, there's too much difference in the world to be, you know, uh, getting annoyed with people because they don't know what that blaster name is. But but yeah. that, maybe that's just me or maybe that's just people like us. I'm very much the same you know the Star Wars kind of fandom has been something which has evolved especially I think tenfold over the past uh, decade especially the past couple of years and it's it's never it's never really got to me why there should be kind of any sort of snobbery you know if it's Star Wars is a thing that you know, not everybody's going to love everything that's put out in every format I mean they're across books films comics but at the end of the day it's all it all comes from an organic place of us loving these space stories from a galaxy far far away all usually from when we were children absolutely i mean uh, you know i i think you're right uh, i think that for many um star wars is like a, a modern mythology you know uh, i think they exist in people's minds the same way that i think perhaps you know a pantheon of gods may have for others you know um you know where just um reality and mythology seem to kind of intermingle a little bit you know when it comes to the star wars world but of course that's something that that george lucas kind of did intentionally right you know just just from the very beginning by you know inducing all these cultural reference points uh, he was pushing the buttons that have been long installed in human culture, you know, you know, by taking from things like, you know, the here with a thousand faces, of course, this incredibly much written about book. Few people actually read it, you know, um, but it's all about, you know, uh, I, I think what people resonate with. And in the case of Star Wars, I think it's not because it was a new story, you know, 40 something years ago. It's because it's one of the oldest kinds of stories that, that we have. Yeah. And it was such a, it was a familiar story that people didn't realize they knew but like you said i mean it was taken from a book that was written years and years before and that funnily enough just not a lot of people had uh, probably read what george managed to do is just put that story which has literally been a story that has been going on for decades and centuries the journey of the hero is one of the stories that more people can get behind than many others oh. so it's uh it's literally been my life as i'm sure it has been yours for the past (laughs) i didn't expect it to be but you know 33 years on uh and it's still just as important as it was from the first time i saw it yeah i uh i know i completely concur there which which is i think why i think i've been a little more live and let live when it comes to a lot of the new you know kind of like additions you know because you know of course i was an original trilogy person because i was lucky enough to grow up and be a kid when the original trilogy was coming out. I mean, that also means that I'm as old as time, but I look at so much of what's happened since, 
as an entry point for 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 newer generations to kind of get into it, you know. So I um you know I I, I love the debates. I love the passion that goes into it all, but I also uh, feel like um, people just need to see it from a kid's eyes and remember what it's like in the very beginning for them. You know, it's just this big, wonderful world, and I think the more, the merrier. Oh, very much so, very much so, uh, and it's it's evolved to so many different um, things now, which is just, I mean, if you're a fan, it's it's kind of amazing, amazing for me when Marvel uh, took over the comic side of things again. Yeah, and I really hadn't. I I remember reading a few of the comics uh, in the '90s. I was never too much into them. For me, it was more the films which kind of took over. But then. I don't think I've read as many Star Wars comics as I have in the past two years, my whole previous 33 years before that. But it's another section that has just, I think it's been fantastic because once again, that is a format that has been written for all ages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I don't know if you felt the same way, but, you know, for a long time, especially um, for some reason, you know, when Dark Horse had the franchise, you know, for a while, like a lot of things, you kind of have like an innate sense of what feels official. Like, but, you know, is it canon? You know, I mean, yeah, I'm allowed to believe this thing's real. And Dark Horse did some tremendous things. I think one of the favorite, you know, uh, uh, projects they did was something called The Star Wars, which I thought was just a, a stroke of genius, uh, uh, you know, where they uh, where they actually took George Lucas's original unrefined stri- uh, script and told the story without refinement and crucially without the input of, you know, people who you could argue were utterly crucial to the success of the first film, certainly, uh, you know, George Lucas's first wife, Marsha Griffin, you know, who, um, if you're not familiar with her, go to YouTube immediately. Well, after this podcast and um, look up a documentary called how Star Wars was saved in the edit and it will blow your mind what the film might have been like and and what was actually created you know from it all just just not 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 behind the camera but in the editing room and so the the idea of the star wars was very much the same i mean all these weird things like chewbacca is this weird kind of bat creature um you know uh, r2d2 can talk uh, without giving it all away it's really weird it, it has the same genetic material as the star wars that we know but it, it it's also full of a lot of stuff that just feels completely wrong and 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 that's what i think marvel have done so successfully is it feels right it feels like it's canon and it's part of that world and so uh, you know I, I gotta say you know as a huge comic book fan i never really read star wars until marvel have been putting out so many titles and it's a lot to keep up with but uh it, it's been really pleasantly surprising yeah you couldn't have put it I couldn't have put it better there i mean it is uh, i did get a bit overwhelmed at one point because then suddenly you know when they hit their initial run of the the star wars comics and then the vader comics and and then every every character was getting their own line and they were intertwining and i just got to a point where i was like okay, i'm thinking i'm gonna have to focus on a couple here and then play catch up yeah. as the months go on completely agree i mean it, it is a lot you know i mean just like you know a, a lot of the kind of i want to say lesser titles but things like dr afro are actually hugely rewarding but you know i mean just but it's just the cleverness of what they've done you know i mean like you mentioned darth vader the thought that somehow in empire strikes back everyone knows this scene you know where uh basically darth has got to recruit a bunch of bounty hunters to to, to hunt down han solo but how does he know them you know yeah. where did he get this crew 
And that's where Darth Vader begins, because, of course, after the destruction of the first Death Star, Darth Vader is cast out, you know, and he basically has to go and find his own crew outside of the Empire in order to go and do or, or in order to go and win the Emperor's favor. And that is a phenomenal premise for a comic book. And, and it fills in some gaps that literally until the comic book came out, I never really scratched my head. Like, why does he point to, you know, uh, Boba Fett and go like, you know, no disintegrations? I mean, where'd that come from? And what's the backstory on that? And that's what that comic book is all about. I also I very much love the kind of the evolution of his relationship with Palpatine in that comic and kind of how because in the original trilogy obviously you you only kind of see that surface relationship and yes you get to explore it more in the uh, prequels but the kind of relationship between them on a day-to-day basis and how he was Vader rarely got to a point where Palpatine wasn't either trusting him 100% or still putting him through his paces at kind of every turn. And that's something that I absolutely, I just love the exploration and how they did that of their particular relationship in those comics, in the Vader comics and Vader down comics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I think, you know, as you know, we obviously know with the most recent trilogy, there, there's so much about their relationship that is nuanced, you know, um, you know, and this is the thing. I mean, you know, it's the idea of Vader as a tragic villain, you know, just like a tortured soul, you know, um, you know, who's really kind of under the grip of something as opposed to truly evil be- being. And, 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 you know, maybe this isn't the rabbit hole for this episode. Is Vader really a bad guy or you know is is he the victim i mean it, it's one of those things where it's really down to how you perceive the force and the dark side certainly whether it is something that you choose or whether it chooses you i mean certainly in the you know i guess the classic you know trilogy luke always sensed there was good in him and so i think that kind of speaks to his relationship with palpatine who is can can we curse can we use bad words yeah 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 okay, so palpatine the biggest asshole in the galaxy literally <laughs> there's no no question that there's no good in him i mean yeah he he is a a massive jackass yeah he is he is uh um just before we dumb because i feel this is now like a complete we could go for go to town on just the comic section so i'll bring i'll bring us back around so we can start the uh mandalorian chat soon enough because i can probably talk for we can both probably talk for too long about the comic side of stuff but i'm just gonna Firstly, just before we go into the Mandalorian, I'm just going to kind of go back a few years because I realized next year, 10 years for me in the music industry and nine years or so ago is actually when I first met you, I think was at Metal Hammer Awards back in 2011, I believe, when you were the, either the editor or editor-in-chief at Metal Hammer magazine. And I can't remember if it was, maybe if it was that one or a couple of after you had stormtroopers there and boba fett there and some of the was it some of the 501st were there i believe and i i think it was a year because david prouse was getting the spirit of hammer award yes indeed uh wow gosh that takes me back that was a lot of fun um well i was definitely at least the editor of uh, metal hammer magazine um where i was for about 10 years and uh we we had an annual you know, award to the Golden Gods, if you're not familiar with them, uh, you know, where we uh, we kind of acknowledge the great and good of the world of heavy metal, you know. But um, you know, we we created an award because I felt very strongly that we should bring people from outside of simple musicianship and 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 also acknowledge just people who were really really cool. And over the years, you know, we had people like Christopher Lee, Brian Blessed, and one year, um, well, uh, we got who the 501st Legion 
referred to as, uh, you know, Uncle Dave, you know, I mean, yeah, so Dave Prowse, you know, came out. And I mean, just just for me as a fan, it was just literally the coolest thing ever. I mean, to, to, to you know, when the, the footage came up of Darth Vader, I mean, it was just like, man, oh, man, what, what an absolute honor. So, yeah, I was having a great old time. And uh, I'll be honest, I mean, he, he just went down an absolute storm. I mean, he, he actually took the podium and he sang a song. I think it's on YouTube. And it, uh, I can't remember all the lyrics, but it included uh, Star Wars made me a fortune. Yes. <laughs> I was jumping up and down too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was definitely uh, an incredibly rewarding evening. And, uh, you know, just like as a fan, just, just what an absolute thrill. Uh, because uh, I'm just going to touch uh, on yourself a little bit because obviously you were with Metal Hammer for a long time and you have done loads in the metal community because I wanted just to speak a little bit about what you kind of do on a day-to-day basis now because I know in 2016 you launched Twin V which is your media consultancy and production house company very exciting space rocks your like celebration of space exploration and the culture it inspires and you're partnered with the european space agency with that one i mean how when when did you initially think that that could be an idea and then how did it come about that the european space agency got involved well it's it's uh you know it's very kind of you to to to, to mention all that ben i mean yeah I, well to be honest I, mean, I, I guess after metal hammer I wanted to continue following my passions. You know, before I was a magazine editor or even a music journalist, I was an archaeologist, and so so much of the, you know, time that I spent is always involved just kind of following my nose and just wanting to do things that kind of inspire me. And you know, when I wake up in the morning, I just want to care about what I'm doing. And you know, so when I came to the end of that tenure, um, I uh, well, I, yeah, I started Twin V. You know, uh, uh, we make documentaries, music videos, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and uh, well, something that actually happened while I was at Metal Hammer uh, sparked Space Rocks, which is one of the things I do and continue to, um, which was, uh, you know, that same award that we actually gave to Dave Prowse. Um, one year we decided to, uh, well, I did because I'm a, I'm a huge space nut, um, was bring in a guy called Matt Taylor, uh, who was the project scientist on a mission called the Rosetta mission, which uh, successfully orbited and landed a uh, robot on a comet, you know, a comet C-67, which was, you know, I mean, uh, as technical feats go, just utterly astonishing. I mean, just like, I remember he once explained it to me that, uh, well, you know, um, it was like landing a bullet on another bullet. But of course, in the case of this one, um, it was literally after a 12 year journey, about a half billion miles away. And um, the fact that it went off without a hitch is in itself, just mind-blowing but what it's taught us about the origins of our own solar system the potential origins of life on our earth is just unbelievable and and so matt is not only a gigantic metalhead he's also a huge star wars fan as well and so so, well anyway we headed off um after he uh you know came to the awards uh where i should say we actually got another big star wars fan to present the award to him uh, a fellow Imperial College alumnus uh, called Brian May, uh, who's an astronomer and uh, also plays in Queen. Um, and uh, yeah, Brian just delivered this phenomenal speech about why people should care about space exploration and so on. And anyway, to cut a very long story short, I proposed to Matt that we should throw a going away party for that little space probe because, you know, you know, I have seen Wally. I mean, who hasn't seen Wally? Yeah. Right? 
and, and we were just kind of feeling a little sad about this little robot that was basically going to die on the surface of this comet and then fall into the sun in like a billion years or something. So, well, why don't we just get some bands to play and et cetera. And before I knew it, uh, Matt introduced me to some wonderful people at the European Space Agency who had been thinking about doing the same sorts of things. You know, they'd done some collaborations with artists like Van Gelis, um, all kinds of stuff. And, and that was really the birth of what's now called Space Rocks, you know, which is actually, it, it took its name from astronaut Tim Peake, who spent six months on the space station. He loved tweeting lyrics from orbit and um, he would always hashtag space rocks. And uh, anyway, there you go. So that's that's why I work with a, a space agency among other stuff. You know, the other half of my life is Vikings, but uh, but that's another story. It's kind of, it's kind of like, if you're not making Star Wars, this is another grown-up job that a Star Wars fan should have. <laughs> well, you know, I should tell you, uh, you, you know, it's unbelievable how many Star Wars fans there are in the world of space science. And actually, you know, I, I, I can't believe I left this out. Um, so Matt Taylor is actually a member of the 501st Garrison, um, the, the, the Dutch Garrison. He's, uh, he's from uh, the UK, but uh, yeah, he lives over in the Netherlands at STEC. Uh, the tech facility where they build and torture spacecraft uh, and, uh, before they get launched out into space. And so, yeah, uh, you know, it all kind of comes full circle. But yet, um, when when you spend time around a lot of space scientists, it is amazing how many of them were first introduced to it all by Star Wars. Yeah, of course, because, uh, I mean, that probably, a lot of them, it got their imaginations running. And then realizing that they're, that there's a way that we are they can work with space and space exploration uh not in a star wars way maybe one day we never know but yeah it must have been like a huge influencer for a lot of these people especially because i mean star wars came what just under 10 years after the the space race captured the nation and the world so it was probably just leaded on from that to inspire tenfold the amount of people that were already inspired by the kind of real life heroes that were going to space. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, and I think it's, it's important to, you know, kind of think about, you know, when it was happening and think about like 70 sci-fi, you know, and um, unless you watch, uh, there's a wonderful documentary called uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, um, which talks about director Jodorowsky, Alejandro Jodorowsky's efforts to, you know, adapt Dune uh, back in the 70s. And it, it all, you know, without it, you know, giving it all away, I mean, he was going to have Pink Floyd doing the soundtrack. Um, he literally had H.R. Giger doing the set design stuff that was later on used to, you know, an alien by Ridley Scott. Just um, phenomenal creativity went into that production, which ultimately fell apart because in the 70s, no one was investing big bucks in sci-fi. And so by the time Star Wars rolled around, you know, uh, you know, George Lucas himself, I believe, said, you know, it was the most expensive B-movie ever made because no one was really sinking cash into sci-fi. You know, I mean, it, it was like the uh, the era of, you know, cinema verite, you know, and a lot of really different B-movie kinds of things. And uh, and Star Wars didn't feel like that at all. It was a believable future because that distressed future that Lucas created. And as a consequence, you know, of, you know, not just George Lucas, but the vision of so many creators. I mean, look at it from the eyes of a, a seven-year-old kid who I was when I first really fell in love with it. Um, you know, it just looked cool. Everything looked 
like it had been lived in. Everything looked like it had been used. The spaceships were amazing. And everything is just sort of had this kind of weird samurai kind of ancient but also futuristic feel. And I just I, I don't I don't remember seeing that anywhere else. I think it was just even even so just the opening sequence must uh, I can't even imagine due to the you know the films and not only the films but the special effects and everything that was out in the 70s Star Wars seemed to take a leap 10 years into the future as to what was kind of possible to put on screen so that in itself I can't even uh, imagine kind of the reaction uh, people would have had when they first sat in the cinemas in the late 70s and w- watched the ships come in over their heads and it's just uh, automatically transported you to, you to that world quicker than you could have imagined. Oh yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I mean, I I still get chills when I watch it. But I mean, just for people that had never seen anything like that before, I mean, just, I mean, it must have just been like, oh my god. I mean, just where else would you have witnessed anything like that? And 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 that's the thing about Star Wars is just that you know it is the cinematography. If you haven't seen the original trilogy in a theater, man, it's amazing how well it holds up. And the truth is, you know, the the impact of it all is, of course. You know, probably blew a lot of adult minds, but for kids, I mean, just talk about just getting them early. I mean, geez, I mean, once you're in, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> I'm 43 years old, and uh, you know, I literally a day has not passed where I haven't thought about Star Wars. Yeah, just so true, and for, so, and it's taken nearly 40, well, 40 plus years for eventually something that I did when uh, I was. Growing up, when I went to first see the prequels, because I thought I saw the original trilogy when they did the re-releases in the cinema a year or so or a couple of years before. Um, But it's taken them this long, which I thought would have happened. I know there's been attempts to make a live action series of Star Wars happen sooner. uh, And the powers that be couldn't figure it out back then until the big powers that be, as in Disney, came along and bought it and put a lot of things into motion. And that's kind of evolved into the mandalorian which premiered last year and now has kind of i think it seems very much so it's reignited a lot of people's love for star wars a lot of original trilogy fans but i think people as a whole that's one thing the mandalorian seems to have done yeah i i I completely agree i mean it's you know the prequels get a lot of shtick you know and they and they, yeah. and they probably should and we're not going to go there you know it's just like it's it's but you know um people kind of have a a bit of a selective memory about just how wrong star wars has gone in the past i mean um you know uh, uh, a lot of people have forgotten about things like um the ewok adventure or caravan of courage you know and um you know obviously the star wars christmas special frequently comes up and isn't that hilarious but you know th- there are many attempts you know uh to create a live action series for star wars as you say you know that that kind of went wrong because they were pitched at the wrong audience and it didn't feel like it was made of the same fabric somehow you know and, you know and yeah. it, for the purpose of this podcast um you know timing you know we need three hours to go through the latest trilogy right but you know of all of the post prequel films made uh, I feel like Rogue One is the closest to the Star Wars that I grew up loving, you know, and it's not to say that I wasn't in, you know, enamored with everything else that happened. I mean, th- there are so many great moments, but I think what the Mandalorian does is it taps in to that same 
sense of this lives in the same universe as the original trilogy. And I think what it also does is because it isn't burdened, kind of like Solo, um, which, you know, I, I thought was a great film. Um, it isn't burdened by the saga. It doesn't have to tell the, the, the continuation of a film that people have spent decades picking apart. It's just a tiny little sliver happening just off to the side. And so it has the freedom to be creative and to have some fun. And you kind of feel like it wasn't made by a committee. It was made by a fan. And of course, John Favreau credentials are as long as my arm. And just, I, I've, I've already watched The Mandalorian straight through twice. And it just gets better and better. I think, like you said, I think that is one of its key strengths is it sits it sits so close to the most probably beloved part of Star Wars. But yet at the same time, it puts you in that seat where you were when first seeing A New Hope in the terms of there's a huge section of unknown about it. We, we, we're familiar with the character references with some of the scenes and the costumes and some of the planets. But it's, for the best part, a majority, if not all of the story, is a place where we can really truly sit and enjoy the ride. Unlike, you know, part of the Skywalker saga, it's kind of following a particular path. And you know, due to the fact of it jumping around in different times from you know in the past to before and then in in the future you kind of knew where certain things had to go for them to honor what has already come before but with the mandalorian we get this kind of we get to explore this old new world in a way where i feel very much so when i was watching the first few episodes i kind of i haven't felt like this before watching a new bit of star wars in a long time where you kind of you get all the nostalgia, but at the same time, you just from scene to scene, what's going to happen next? And it's it's extremely refreshing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and, and let's like, you know, kind of think about um, why why we care so much. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying that they should make this, but I don't think they could have made um, something around Dengar or, you know, uh, anything else. I mean, it kind of had to be Boba Fett because uh, I think that. Everybody who's watched the original trilogy has had the conversation, in, in my case, many, many times. Is Boba Fett a good guy or a bad guy? You know, um, is Boba Fett even a guy? What's under the mask? And, and, and of course, that, that, that's because there is so little to hint at what a Mandalorian is at that point. Now, of course, you get a bit of that in the prequels but the truth is that uh you know the, the the mandalorian is just such an incredible fan service and of course you can watch it as a standalone and have no idea what's going on in star wars at all or you can watch it as the kind of fans that we probably are where we, we've watched those films many times and appreciate the amount of clever references um to the films there are and also really kind of like indulge in in this world and and it could have gone so wrong. I mean, just Baby Yoda alone. I mean, just, whoa. It's just like, you know, they did take some risks. And I, I love the story about, you know, how Baby Yoda could have been like a fully uh, CGI kind of thing, which, you know, I think is, you know, sort of hilarious because, uh, you know, they didn't. They actually went with a uh, physical effect. And, oh, man, what's the name of the documentary? And, you know, who who's in the uh, he's in the actual uh, what's his name? Sorry, Werner Herzog. Yes. Oh, uh, yes. yes. 
I'm losing my mind. Sorry. Um, I just get this. It's like a sugar rush. When I talk about Star Wars, I start to. Yeah. So Werner Herzog actually um, said that you guys are being cowards about this. Don't go with CG. You, you've got to make a physical effect for Baby Yoda. And so they actually went with it. And just that alone, you know, could have been a disaster. But, you know, somehow, I mean, how do how how does uh, Pedro Pascal communicate so much pathos, so much dynamism? With a uh, with a little Yoda puppet, and and yet somehow you always know what the Mandalorian is. You always know what Mando is thinking. Like how is that possible? Mm. He's got a helmet on. But this is the thing. It's just like there's so much to be said about what John Favreau has done. But how is it so well acted? I mean, just like how how can you infer so much about this character without ever actually seeing him? And, and I think that's what makes it successful. Is it is a wonderful bit of, um, you know, directing. It's a wonderful bit of acting, but also it, it does what I think other areas of Star Wars have sometimes forgotten was first you have to start with a great story. And that's what the Mandalorian is. Yeah, that very much so. And to touch on, on the, the acting is something which I just find it's, it's quite unbelievable because you've got a puppet acting against with an actor and you kind of feel i don't know obviously not being an actor but i kind of feel if you're an actor going into a scene like that where you're going to be either going against something that's cgi or something that's effectively not there or even a, a puppet with the team that are there that i don't know if you feel that you have to act your like your expressions and everything has to be a bit more elevated to give the scene you the still the exact same amount of acting kudos but he and then pedro's behind a mask so you've got a puppet and a character that's complete in full head-to-toe costume yet you still get so much from both characters and like you said you know what they're thinking you know what the mando's thinking and just by those extremely subtle movements of you know his head from side to side or his shoulders or just the way he's sitting and i just kind of not only to do that in short form but then to do it over the cross a whole entire series you know where we only see his face for best part of one minute to two minutes right at the end we're talking about something which is become a thing that's happened a few times anthony daniels for one where acting has had to go beyond a mask pretty much uh in the star wars universe because as we we know there's a lot of star wars characters that are well stormtroopers darth vader the the main ones but what they've managed to do in the mando especially opposite a huge chunky scenes with just the mando and the child in the in his cockpit which some i've i've found some like the most humorous oh absolutely i mean i i I think that you're uh so on the money there because i I guess that's the thing i mean when you kind of think about what what anthony daniels had to work with uh you know there is uh you know a lot of talent i think in subtlety you know um in kind of like choosing your moments to do things and it's not just body language it's almost like you kind of have to think it you kind of have to really be in that character's world you know in order to kind of do all that and i I think that's one of the things that makes mandalorian so endearing you know but but there is so much about it to celebrate you know i think in in some cases the fact that 
it is surprisingly knocked back. You know, um, it's not effects laden. You know, there are some very cool things happening, but you know, the the soundtrack isn't bombastic. It, it just kind of feels like okay, this is this is kind of just like a a, a neat little sort of kind of like a western kind of ditty you know and and of course so much of the action references spaghetti westerns you know just like the way that it's shot it's just so cool but it never feels overblown but there are many things that are done that just feel like such a tip of the hat to lifelong fans like the the like the kind of like the the, the mccory homage that they do in every episode where the, the credits roll and it lets you kind of revisit key scenes you know it really feels so beautifully serialized and that's the kind of stuff that i think only comes from filmmakers with a real cultural vocabulary you know where it's not just uh we need to tell the story but but what are the little things that we're going to sprinkle over the top to make this really really super cool and 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 there is such a feast for the eyes you know i I feel like everywhere you look, there is always something going on. You know, we're kind of bringing it all full circle to what we were talking about in the comics, where what's so essential about Star Wars, it always has to feel like it's made of that same original fabric somehow. And if if I could just digress for a second, I'm not sure if everyone's ever read something that came out like almost like 25 years ago now. Um, an author named Kevin Anderson um, did a, a book called Tales of the Bounty Hunters, and, and it was all canon. You know, but it was literally just a, a way of telling the backstories of, of, of Dengar, of Bosch, a bit about Boba Fett as well. And you just never learn that much from the films about who these people are and what they do. And so by giving it away and letting people, you know, peer behind the magic curtain and really kind of like drink deeply of it all, even though The Mandalorian obviously isn't about Boba Fett, the, the fact that they did it and they succeeded is truly remarkable. You know, I mean, the amount of control they must have given to John Favreau is really unbelievable because, I mean, I could just see so many things where it, it might have gone wrong. But I mean, somehow, I mean, well, just just look at the result. I mean, I literally I can't wait until the next season. Funnily, actually, I mean, you've just sparked off a memory in my head, though, that book that you mentioned. Um, and now that I think about it, that was a book that I actually have, I don't think in depth read, but um, have gone through a fair few times. I feel that was the, maybe the first book I actually read to a certain extent, Star Wars book, other than previous before that was just watching the films. It was fascinating. Yeah, 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 big time. And, and yeah, it, it's just, I guess the, the, the hardest thing and, and the interesting thing about Kevin Anderson is, I mean, he's written a huge amount of books, you know, set in the fantasy world of Dune. You know, again, um, I think in order to do it successfully, you have to know the rules. Right. And obviously this is all fiction. You know, I know that. But, you know, kind of instinctively what is possible and what is not possible in the world of star Wars. And so when people break the rules, you instantly kind of go like, hang on a minute. I, I think that's why for me, you know, just like the whole thing about midi chlorians never really sat well. Cause like, hang on a minute. No, no, the force is mystical. You can't just do a midi chlorian count. That's just not how it works. And of course, who am I to say they got this wrong, but you kind of yeah. just know in your gut, you know, what fits and what doesn't. And in order to, to really get it right, I think you really have to live and breathe all that stuff. And, 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 and that's why I think the most successful uh, things about the Mandalorian are very, very knowing. And yet you don't have to be a star Wars snob to kind of just get into the story. And, and I know a lot of people that just, they've got no time for star Wars, but love these stories because they were so well told. 
Yeah, and I think also on that basis of storytelling, especially with The Mandalorian, and something that I really appreciate and love so much about the series, are in near enough every episode, you get these stories within the story, the, the kind of everyday things he's having to go through in order to do the kind of, in a sense, straightforward thing that he's been asked to do or he's trying to do, whether it was initially picking up uh, Baby Yoda and then taking him to one place, but just like the scene with the Jawas and having to like doing trade off to get parts of his ship back for um, that giant egg from that random creature. Yeah the kind of when he had to do the hand signals and uh, barter with the sand people in order to go through their land to help this other fellow guild member. It's all those like elements there, which are, they're so well thought out and, and obviously a moment that has been written and then well lived in and thawed out to kind of just bring all those kind of lovely star Wars nostalgic elements in that just make this series so much more than the initial story they're telling. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, John was, I think was already established, but man, John was her dicks, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just, but yeah, but all those things are so right. You know, it's like they, they, uh, I think nostalgia is the right word. They allow you to revisit some of those kind of elements, you know, and, and just like they flesh them out a little better. And so many real high points too. I mean, episode three, you know, we're literally, uh, obviously without wishing to give it all away, but I assume if you're listening to Star Wars podcast, you kind of know, you know, what goes on in the, uh, in the series, when you get a chance to see all the Mandalorians in action, like literally it, it is just the most air punching and glorious moment, but it's also the, like the other stuff as well. I think it was like the, uh, the penultimate episode or maybe the last one that was directed by Taika Waititi. Um, you know, and, and if you don't know him, certainly, um, a phenomenal comedic director, of course, who, um, you know, did, uh, uh Thor Ragnarok, I believe. And, and just like the banter between troopers is just hysterical, but it never goes so far that it feels like, okay, this is too much. It always just feels like it's just like they rein it in to where it feels authentic and, and really uh, believable. And, and yeah, I mean, it's like, man, that scene with the sand people, so cool. Once again, it's like ex- exploring those, those things that we know, um, we know about as part of the star Wars world, but we don't always get to, live with those characters sometimes and it's funny because characters like sam people which are so kind of iconic to most star wars fans and their screen time is next to nothing really oh, absolutely i mean but, but the, the, the thing is is their screen time might be three seconds but i spent maybe my entire childhood with a boba fett action figure and this is the thing it's just like for a lot of people films were basically the uh the the launching off point into a uh, a childhood full of you know being surrounded by the toys and that's the thing is kind of forget sometimes just how successful star wars has been as a you know uh, as a toy franchise as well i mean of course not to digress but like if, if you've ever seen like the toys that made us or um what's it called a uh, plastic oh, yeah. galaxy as well yeah the you toys know? that made us yeah brilliant yeah. series on netflix absolutely yeah uh, i mean so you know i i know every nook and cranny of a tie fighter as a consequence of the of what the toys were and so so seeing them in action and seeing them live on screen is just so much fun but you know the the, the thing that makes it also really cool is that 
just the atmosphere and and jj abrams did it before i did so i'm gonna be okay with this right so we're gonna talk about star trek on a star wars podcast for just one moment okay so um if if you ever watched the reimagined star trek film the first one that jj abrams did now he talks about basically creating the ultimate sin which is he combined the submarine warfare of star trek with the fast-paced action of star wars to create a vision of star trek that was completely new and i think john favreau has done something very similar with this where he actually took gene roddenberry's original concept for star wars the one that he actually sold to paramount basically for for star trek i mean gene roddenberry's original concept for star trek which he pitched was a western set in space which is exactly what john favreau has achieved now gene roddenberry did it to basically get it past the commissioners you know and, and of course he didn't make anything like western in space it, it, it was a film about space, space exploration but what john favreau did was he he created a western set in space and and that's i think what the is really so masterful about it all is because you can't just understand what works for star wars you also have to know your westerns and if you have watched high noon um you know high plains drifter 310 to yuma any of these you'll appreciate the reference yeah. points that are in there and and, and that's what I think sits outside of Star Wars, a lot of the Mandalorian is just really great filmmaking. It's really great filmmaking, and it's uh, one thing I wanted to touch on is the cinematography in the series is just something to really appreciate. It's something very much which, to me, is another reason that kind of feels like you said the cinematography from the original trilogy still stands up so well, even when you see it in a cinema today. You know, a film that films that were four decades old. And the cinematography in Mandalorian, I feel, takes from a lot of those original techniques and really paints this kind of beautiful picture on screen. So all the different settings and the scenes of the different planets we visit and the different home worlds and all that, they all kind of have this, they're all just beautifully shot and described within what's happening in the scene at that moment i think that lends itself so much to the success of the mandalorian it's just visually what you're seeing at all points is so well thought out oh yeah it definitely is i mean just there's so many moments where i just i just wanted to hit pause it is really beautifully rendered like the i i don't know what it is about like the the color saturation or balance that they do but it is a gorgeous view you know and and you know i mean christ knows that i've sat through many a film and series simply because they look nice you know because you know yeah. i am you know massive sci-fi loser uh or winner you know <laughs> uh, winner, you know always. depends on how you look at winner winner yes, yes. always <laughs> but uh but yeah um but the thing is is you don't revisit them um whereas yeah with this uh yeah it is it is so beautifully rendered i mean i i don't know enough about uh the concept art uh you know that's shown in the credit scenes and all that but you don't know which came first you know i mean did they kind of create these screen prints first and then translate it to film or or vice versa but yeah it feels like pretty much every frame is kind of thought through like nothing is wasted everything has same polish to it all but it all feels sort of incidental and i, I gosh i don't know what the budget was like but it feels like they did a lot less a lot more with a lot less you know paired with the other things and yet you love it because things are given room to breathe you know you can actually take in scenes and luxuriate and things and i mean just like even just like the smaller things like basically the again without giving it all away 
the first few episodes basically consist of of almost like the, a video game plot. You know, he he completes a new mission, he gets a new Beskar steel upgrade to his armor, right? Yeah, and yeah. sort of, and it just sort of goes downstairs, and and it literally like is just like completing missions in a video game. But every time it goes down there, you see just a little more. You know, you see the other Mandalorians, you kind of see their insignia and all these sorts of things, and and it's like that, returning that make... to a safe space <laughs> where you it, go to it, save exactly your like the, the level up thing. Like, gosh, beat the level, you know, get to go down, get my upgrade, and all that. And so that's cool. But you know, even there, you know, they're they're just like these subtle things that are done. They don't take a lot of money to make, but they're kind of, they're thought through and all those little, you know, visual elements. It's like, it's almost like someone behind the Mandalorians going like, oh, we know how closely you're looking, you know, and we're going to throw in this, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it it's actually, it, it is really rewarding, you know, just like on successive views because there is so much to take in. The first time you're totally focused on the story, the second and probably in my case, the third and fourth times begin to really kind of see how much else is in there. And, and that's great because again, uh, you know, one of my favorite stories about the new trilogy is, uh, the time in basically years and years ago now where, uh, loads of fans, you know, lined up at the San Diego comic-con to yeah. be the first on the barrier to, uh, to watch the the first trailer, right. Where they were yeah. debuting it all. And so like, you know, like many star Wars fans have done over the years, they actually camped out. And, you know, as the story goes, JJ Abrams ordered them all a pizza, like these pizza trucks just arrived out of nowhere. And basically everybody who was waiting in line overnight, got a got a free pizza and of course that isn't like a a a 10 million dollar marketing budget being blown but it's just a nice thing to do because for a franchise that big for them to kind of go yeah we know you know we understand you we know that you're there waiting overnight that's what a lot of the mandalorian felt like it felt like it kind of like a a a very personal pat on the back from people who are just as big of fans as we are yeah very much so Uh, yeah i mean the two guys who are pretty much the day-to-day john favreau and um and why have i gone and forgotten his name <laughs> what's the guy a creator of the clone wars dave filoni yes um are guys who just as people in that queue have lived it and have lived it from day to day in their whole lives and and that's very much what the mandalorian is like you said it's just it's kind of it's a huge pat on the back to everyone that has been a part of this journey yeah oh absolutely and, and it's just like look we recognize that and here is all of this and we're going to keep doing this for however long this series goes on for yeah that it's been brilliant at doing i think as well is bringing these like more great characters but also werner herzog carl weathers nick nolte these like veteran actors back into the fold and just putting some of their best work back on screen again and it's just been great to watch yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it took me for ages to realize that Nick Nolte's character was an Ugnaught. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even realize, but yeah, you're right. But, you know, it's just I kind of tell like, you know, what, what all my friends are like, because immediately everyone's going, I have spoken, you know, <laughs> yeah. of everything. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there, there are some tremendous performances and, and, you know, Pedro Pascal is absolutely amazing. But yeah, Carl Weathers is just so, so good in this. Werner Herzog, who who thought of casting that guy as a, you know, an, an ex Imperial? I mean, just like, Oh man, what a cool idea. But I, I would have never thought that literally like, you know, one of the greatest documentarians ever would agree to like playing a star Wars film. I mean, who would say no, but I mean, 
I wouldn't bank on him having said yes, but it's it's so cool. But what I hope happens in the next series is that they really are able to develop more things like the relationship with Carl Weathers, of course, Gina Carano is Cara Dune, who I think is just, just one of the coolest, most interesting characters in the whole thing. But you know, uh, you feel like you don't really get to spend a lot of time with her. And, and I hope that changes because I think that, uh, uh, she just, she's a, a complete ass kicker. And, um, and that I think, you know, who knows if it will fragment into more series or different ones, but I hope that she gets a lot more screen time, in the new one. And I very much feel with Gina, she's she's been one of those people that's done that extremely hard transition to go from UFC or boxing, whatever professional sport it is, into acting. And I think this seems very much so that it's like the role that was made for her, that her, that she's kind of been waiting for. Her whole acting career kind of has been leading up to this moment because she fits so perfectly well into it and her character is so interesting and like you say we uh, we only really touch we don't even really scratch the surface with her we find a few bits a little bits of information out about her and then before you know it we're into a battle and then before you know it she's gone again but i really hope that kind of relationship between her and mando is something that's definitely explored more in length as i'm sure it will be as the series goes on seeing her post the other day because obviously fortunately enough they wrapped uh, all of the filming of season two before all these lockdowns worldwide started. So I think the Mandalorian season two has still got an October 2020 release date because it's all in the editing room now. Obviously, all the extra voiceovers and everything that needs to be recorded can all be done at home, which is a great place. And we're very lucky that that's the case for this. But it's something that I can't her and Carl Weathers' character, especially I really can't wait to see more of them. I'm totally with you there. You know, I kind of feel like, and, and it should be said, you know, the episodes are actually really short, you know, um, you know, they yeah. kind of, they just whiz by, but yeah, I, I kind of feel like season one was like the establishing shot. And so you're kind of introduced to everything, but I, I really hope that there are some deeper story arcs in the second season. You know, and, and of course, you know, as the mystery of the child, you know, develops, you know, just like, uh, what's your theory, by the way, what, what is the child? See, this is, because suppose when I was reading up about this when it first became a thing, supposedly George Lucas never wanted Yoda's homeworld to be something that was visited at any point. I think he wanted he always wanted that air of mystery around Yoda and the species from where he came from. When you look at the line, obviously this is set five years after Return of the Jedi, so we've we've lost Yoda. What? whilst this child was maybe 30, 40 years old mm -hmm. or something in that kind of time. And I, I feel is it something, it feels to me that this isn't a common thing within the species the, uh, and it's not something that they all are force sensitive, but maybe it's something they all, some of them like Yoda are born with that ability and it's kind of passed on in my mind to a, like a certain level of force ability is passed on from one to the next which kind of makes me feel that or hoping that the child is kind of yoda's um i forget the word but it's kind of like it, it's the progression it's the it's the next one in line to be able to reach the power that yoda reached 
Yeah, well, exactly this, you know, I mean, I I think that um, you do see another member of Yoda's species, right? Yaddle in the Phantom Menace, right? You know, sits on the Jedi Council. And so I think the only thing um, that you can infer is perhaps these these weird beings, you know, perhaps are especially attuned because of their incredibly long lifespans to the force. And so maybe they're kind of somehow stronger conduits, you know, whatever else. And, and maybe Yoda got it on, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, the timeline kind of stacks up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that they keep it mysterious, but clearly the Imperials know the power of this species after Return of the Jedi. They're trying to, I guess, manipulate it for their, for their own evil ends, you know, but I, I, I like that you don't know that they don't actually tell you, yeah. you just have to kind of figure it out. And to be honest, I, I think, yeah. Um, the, the the whole baby Yoda thing, it's it's just a bit of light relief for what could otherwise be really really kind of very heavy. And and of course, can we just be honest? Baby Yoda is the most adorable thing ever created. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. I mean, I should hate it. I should, you know, like <laughs> you know, like any proper star. But no, I mean, it's just yeah, it's it's really something else. And even as much credit as I give the filmmakers, I don't think that they could have anticipated the the kind of like the, the the cultural tsunami that baby yoda was going to inspire i mean the amount of memes was just absolutely incredible <laughs> you know i um, I, I i love um, that we we have all we all waited and we all looked to see how much a baby yoda toy was when it came available <laughs> oh absolutely oh man yeah the, the the black market baby yoda t-shirts and all that kind of stuff and it was just like they didn't waste any time like literally None before the series all. even out None there was just absolutely but you know i mean it, it's yeah but more power to him it's so funny and so silly i don't know why it you know just captured people's imagination the way that it did but but that's the thing though you know i mean i i, I think that the worst areas of star wars fandom are the areas that say well you know this just isn't serious enough you know for me or whatever else because you know people forget they forget what it was like in the in the beginning you know when they were kids and when they saw it for the first time there's a lot that's a bit goofy and a bit weird and it should never go too far into that that territory but that's one of the things that makes it fun you know it's just like the 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 kind of creature features you know the weird things yeah i mean gosh i mean the rancor was not made to impress science fiction fans it was created to make kids all around the world go Ew, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's it's what Lucas has said from the beginning. These things are made for twelve-year-olds. Yeah, uh, that's the way they're supposed to be viewed, and they have to have that balance. And it's not like they shy away from not so much the darker things, but darker tones, especially in comics. Very much so in all the films. There's always an underline of dark tone to particular storylines. But I, I feel as something that Star Wars does so well, has done for so long, like you've said, it, we need that kind of relief, whether it's humor or just lightheartedness or a new creature that has been created literally for us to have those types of reactions. Or in the case of Baby Yoda, to have the like, oh, my God, reactions yeah. when we see it. But uh, I think it's, it's embedded, isn't it, in the yeah. kind of Star Wars code? Oh, absolutely. You know, so of course, I mean, just like, you know, Mando has no choice but to go and save him. I mean, of course, I mean, but, you know, you're you're kind of shouting at the screen like you're just going to leave him there. I mean, you know, it's yeah. just one of those. So what's really interesting is, you know, the rest of Mandalorian seem to agree with him, which which suggests a bit of a code, which is, I think, one of the coolest things about it all is um, you never really get it from anywhere else. It's only in this series where they really fully develop this almost like kind of religious 
tenor to it all, which I think goes back to one of the first things we talked about, you know, here with a thousand faces and George Lucas's study of anthropology. I think I'm saying this very ignorantly, but I, I think that there are some similarities between the, the Mandalorian code and, um, you know, Sikh religion, you know, um, just, you know, where the, 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 the helmet can never come off, yeah. um, all these things. And, you know, and a, a bit of samurai kind of honor, you know, has to be done in a certain way and so on. And a whole subplot that goes throughout the entire series is really interesting to me. And, and you know, I'm probably reading too much into it. The whole reclamation of uh, the, the Beskar steel yeah. is, is very similar to um, the long period of reclamation, um, you know, by Japanese people. Because, of course, uh, you know, anyone who knows anything about Japanese culture knows that the katana is an absolutely sacred object and integral to Japanese culture. And many of the swords, family swords that had lived through families for generations, you know, were were taken as souvenirs and trophies after the war. And so there's still this ongoing process to reclaim, you know, these sacred objects. And I think there are a lot of similarities there as well. And that that's what I think is so cool about Mandalorian, because, again, just like we're talking about the original Star Wars, um, a lot of the Mandalorian you you kind of love because it's not new it's actually incredibly familiar it's just cast in a different way and that i mean that perfectly leads us on to something that i really wanted to talk about which is uh we get to see right at the end which just made me jump for joy is the dark saber indeed man i mean that is just a mind blower <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, that that is something where it's like you kind of, you kind of look at that and uh, when we were talking earlier it's like we can save a bit of money here save a but not there <laughs> no 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 i mean the, the the payoff at the end is absolutely unbelievable right you know i mean just just the, the whole fight scene with the tie fighter just kind of yeah you know was just i mean that that whole sequence is just stunning and again, you know, I mean, clearly someone making all of these episodes has seen the Rocketeer just when when the Darksaber makes the appearance, because, of course, they don't explain what it is. You know, so no. you kind of you have to know. So it's just like there's probably 50 percent of the people going, well, that's an interesting color. And then the other 50 percent going like, I can't believe it's the Darksaber. All this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, setting the scene for, you know, a, a new season, you know, that that's one thing. But this they just they just punched it through the ceiling. I was just unbelievable. Well, so, you well, know, that's, that's something I really hope, like going into the second season. I mean, because for, obviously, like you said, there's some people that are going to see that and go, but that's a very strange lightsaber. And then there's other people who obviously watch the animated Clone Wars uh, series are going to go, well, how does he have that now? Was that something that was gotten in the Great Purge? I think uh, it was Bo-Katan who had it last and what's happened to her. And, you know, are we going to see flashbacks of how this saber was passed her or how Moff Gideon got hold of it? Was there a battle to get hold of it? Can we see that? <laughs> like so yeah. many questions that come from just that one prop. Yes, there is there is much to learn, much to learn, and I I think that's one of the uh, the the best things about all of this is that just however deep you want to go, you know, you can be a surface fan, and you can just say, okay, well that's interesting and it's got some backstory, but I don't really care. Or if you're a fan, it, it just it works at all of those levels, and I think that's what really is the success of it all because they have done something that I don't think any of the films, you know, except for maybe Rogue One have done successfully which is to please the very exacting standards of the completely ungrateful fandom you know of yeah. which i count myself a member 
and also create an entry point for people that aren't that into it, but just want to be entertained. It, it operates at both of those levels so well. And uh, I got to say, though, um, you know, as a kind of like a parting shot for the first season, which I think is just words like masterpiece and flawless get thrown around. There's some things that, you know, were not perfect. There were some things that may maybe make this not an absolute kind of masterpiece, but I have never been so entertained by a series as I was this. And I, I, I have to hand it to Disney. I kind of thought, well, that's a cynical move. I mean, just dump it all on there. Where um, I, I guess, you know, all the spinoff movies have more or less, there's yeah. a moratorium, isn't there, right? I would be perfectly happy if Star Wars just, for now, until this kind of, you know, mysterious new trilogy set in a completely different time and locale, which is really interesting, but we know nothing about. Um, I think it would be wonderful if Star Wars more or less just consists of series of this level of quality, you know, and, and there's so much else to look forward to as well. But I think that this is like the perfect segue, you know, I mean, we've had this saga, we've been on the emotional ride, and now we just want to have some fun. And I think it's a, it's a great way that, it's perfect that we can kind of continue on the story to a certain extent not the skywalker saga but we can continue on the story of the the sagas that we followed for the past 40 years in a way which like you said there's so much depth there's so many characters that we can go into over the period especially over the period of the the other seasons that are coming the obi-wan series and the cassian andor series they all sit within the original trilogy canon space so well yeah um and it's 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 a great way i feel to just keep not keeping everyone happy but just keep the content to a brilliant level that one thing that a series has always lended it to is when you make a feature film you have a very limited time even if you're making a trilogy you have two hours sometimes two and a half to wrap everything up and make sure everything makes sense and make sure we can skip from one section to another without really focusing on this section over here which is going to pee like 10 people off but one thing the series lends to is suddenly you've gone to a point where you're like great we've got eight hours to tell this particular story yeah and then we've got another eight hours to tell another fraction of the story again but like one of the one of the things that really excites me i mean i from what i understand there's it hasn't been confirmed by lucasfilm but i think enough people have confirmed it including variety that rosario dawson is going to play ahsoka tano in season two and that is something which i'm just kind of like it's obviously something you for me one of the best characters ever created in the star wars universe and someone we've all been wanting to see in live action for a very very long time to see what happens with the soaker and how Ahsoka can come and fit into this and where she is kind of in her journey is is so interesting man that is so cool that is ah well, we'll, we'll just have to see that. that. Did you not know no, that? No, I didn't know that. I saw it because I was what I was listening to Kevin Smith, and he uh, they mentioned it because it's good friend with Rosario, and yeah. and he was saying how she has been a massive fan of the character ever since Clone Wars. So she watched the whole entire series and has been talking. And I've obviously there's a bunch of people which are going to wish Ashley was kind of in the role, but right. you never know. We could still have a Darth Maul thing on our hands where we have a different actor play the character and somebody else voice him. I think that's an absolutely uh, a brilliant idea. You know who else they need to seriously develop in this series? Who? Or just make another series altogether. Something on the armorer. 
Oh yes, jeez. There there were a lot of cool scenes in the entire thing, but I, I I just think one of the the absolute most badass moments was literally just like that bit where she basically just takes out a bunch of stormtroopers with her hammers, you know, and it's just like oh gosh, there's so many ways this could all go. It's it's definitely something we might be able to see. Oh, uh, hearing Uncle Bob, Mister Bob Iger. Uh, speak about when he does his like shareholder meetings over the phone where they get all their <laughs> star wars news that he probably shouldn't be releasing but is too excited not to um, uh, but he was talking about how the map we we're definitely gonna see the mandalorian series venture into more characters and then those characters hopefully take their own stories oh which gosh, just because it's it's so exciting, like you said, with that character. So there's just so much that can be done. And there's so much world that we're kind of yet to explore. And then, of course, there's just so many characters. One of the ones I was reading up recently, and I didn't know this before, but General Hux's dad is a character called Brendol, who is a former Imperial officer who was, the, who was instrumental in the formation of the First Order. What? And I'm like... Okay, so the way where we sit, I mean, you've got the First Order is a big thing. And I think that's what, 30 years after Return of the Jedi is the difference in time there. And the Mando set five years. So the First Order, to some extent, must be building somewhere in like fragments of the Empire. Wow. So if we could suddenly get this character, another kind of really dark character come in and be wanting to build from the ashes of the empire and create the first order it just gives us another kind of i mean that could be a series in itself i love the sound yeah it could be and hey and another spin-off series ig11 killing things like the yeah. no plot no 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 dialogue no plot just ig11 goes ape shit kills everything the end like, i feel you know, that should be like a series of how you, you remember how we used to get the little marvel shorts uh-huh. I oh, think you just get a series of IG-11 shorts. Yeah. Where it's just it's just little missions of him wiping out loads of people over the course of 6 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Just no no plot, no no reason, just just pure violence for for that entire I mean cuz I mean that, gosh those those scenes are absolutely hysterical. You know, it's just ah, uh, it's just so well done. And again, I mean while we're kind of talking about, you know, spin-offs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to know everything about nick nolte uh, is it quills uh quills yeah i don't uh, know too much how but it's q it's like q u double i double l i believe yeah yeah there's a wonderful um backstory to all of these sorts of characters that kind of like enhances and enriches the original trilogy it just it just fleshes it out and it paints beyond the canvas that those films kind of allow for which i think is one of the things that makes this such a a brilliant thing is this really does feel like a continuation of that story, you know, the aftermath and, and what, what, what a genius move to set it in the disarray, you know, immediately following the destruction of the final death star. I mean, it, it, it's because of course that is how things would go, right. You know, I mean, the, the rebellion was set up to, to bring down the empire. It's not set up to set up a government, you know? And so, so this is the chaos that ensues. And in that chaos, all these things are going on, which I just think, I mean, people really thought about this. So that's, I guess that's the, again, we said it before, it is is so clearly fan-made. That's where it wins, is it was made by people who care. Yeah, very much so. And there's uh, uh, something that I never really thought about until reading the comics again. The one particular comic, Shattered Empire, and then 
something that is also touched on very much if you read the Poe Dameron comics. Obviously, once with Shattered Empire, you, you forget how to kind of like, yeah, we, we beat the Death Star, we beat the baddies, but the Empire is spread across multiple galaxies. So what happens if that report of that happening doesn't reach planet so many light years to the right and all that so there's fragments of this empire still going on to the same level it was and then also there's characters like i don't know if you've read the poe dameron comics but there's a imperial character lord terex i think he is but he's he's a guy who was kind of infamous in the empire he was going he was a stormtrooper who kind of watched the fall of these ships into the desert as the kind of final battles commenced. And then he ends up being one of the the kind of darkest Imperial leaders within the first order. And so there's, there's obviously there's so much story there and there's so many characters that we'd never even thought about it that will exist in all the surrounding galaxies. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it, it kind of blows your mind when you think about it, you know, because I guess the scale of the Star Wars universe is never really kind of fully seen until you begin to kind of step outside of it, you know, with things like the Mandalorian, because it's always so focused on a unique set of characters, you know, who are like at the center of this conflict. I guess, again, I've drawn the parallel with Rogue One. You don't always know the backstory of these other kind of characters that are just off to the side, just beyond the camera's focus. And and I, I guess that's that's exciting because that kind of feels like a blank check like almost anything can happen and it's not that i'm down on the second trilogy it's more that um i feel unburdened by it all okay now i know what happened yeah it's it's fine it's done now and um you know now now let's explore all these other kind of you know storytelling avenues and um that's uh that's the best thing about all this is there has never been a better time to be a star wars fan because there's so much going on Thanks for listening everyone, that marks the end of episode 1, but tune in next week for the second part of my interview with Alex Milas, where we talk more Mandalorian. May the force be with you.